Over the last several years, I've dabbled in enology. That is the study of winemaking. I've dabbled a bit in that. We have a local college, actually a couple of them now, that, that have wine studies. And I've been fascinated to learn about it. Some of you know I've, I've talked a little bit about the process. And uh, in, in our part of, of the Northwest, we are blessed with the right conditions to grow a particular pesky vitis vinifera grape called the Pinot Noir, which is a thin grape that is a bit tricky to grow. It's temperamental, is what they call it. But this part of uh, the country is one particular swath of land that we can, we can grow here. So I've learned a lot about wine and how it's made. It's, it's harder than you would think. It's not just throwing some stuff, you know, some fruit in a bucket and then walking away. It's, it's a little more involved in that. And you can really screw things up if you do it wrong. That's what I've learned so far. I'm still taking a few classes here and there. But you know, the general process, if you're, if you're lucky enough to have the right kind of land, which around here would be a slope. They're looking for a slope, like a, I don't know, like a hill. And, and, and you really want a south-facing sort of slope. That's like the key thing. And in Oregon, you, you can't call it Willamette Valley Pinot Noir unless it's grown at certain altitudes, so like 200 to 800 uh, feet above sea level. So it's kind of specific. But if you got the right kind of land, which is very expensive now, by the way, finding the right kind of land is expensive. If you were able to procure that land, good on you, then you would need to plant grapevines. And you can get all kinds of different cuttings from places, but that's a bit of an expense. So then you, you, you say if you're lucky enough, you had enough money, you've got the land, and then you plant these vines. Well, then you've got to farm a bit. And in Oregon, you can only water the first year. And you can't really like strong water. You're talking about drip irrigation. After that, the, the vine's got to struggle. That's kind of a thing with wine, apparently. So if you're really good, then you've, you've, you've done your work as a farmer. Three to five years is about the time you have to wait for the first crop so that you could actually do something with it. So you've made it that far. You've got the land, you've got it planted, you've done your farming right, and now you've got your first crop. And the thing is, you can't just pick the grapes when they look right to you. There's more to it than that. The grapes, when they, when they start to be the right sort of maturity, they'll go from green to more purpley. They call that verasion. And that can happen sometimes overnight, which is crazy. It can happen quick, so winemakers are always watching and they're testing things and they're, they're testing the grapes for something. We call sugar, they call bricks. And they're looking for a particular number. It's very chemistry driven. And so if you're the winemaker and all the stars align, you got your crop and it's not raining so they won't mold, that's a problem around here. I guess in the south they deal with that same thing too, but it's because of humidity. But if you get everything right and you've got that crop, at the right level, then as the winemaker, you're deciding sometimes in the middle of the night, we gotta, we gotta get these off the vine now. And so you go out with some pretty, pretty sharp shears and you're cutting that stuff off as fast as you can and you're getting it in because what happens as soon as juice starts flowing is this little thing called fermentation. So there's a battle against the elements here and against chemistry. So then if you get them cut, you get them all up and they're in vats, well around here if you wanna make Pinot Noir, it tends to be thin skin. So to get the nice color that you want, 
The next thing you have to do is put them in a bunch of vats, but you have to cool them down so that they don't start fermentation. What you want to do is cold soak all the berries and all the stems, usually, if you're doing whole cluster. You've got to get them all together, kind of stewing here, but it's a cold sort of stew. And then that's got to happen for many, many days. They, they hit them with cold elements. I don't know what that chemical is, but they hit it. Not a chemical, but like a cooling agent. They keep them down, and once they feel like they've gotten a good marinating, they got good color, then what they do is they let the temperature come up, and then they hit them, they inoculate the, the grapes with yeast. Now, there's yeast all over the place. There's yeast in the field already, but a lot of winemakers want to have a special kind of yeast. So they'll inoculate it with yeast, and then that really gets the heat going because then fermentation happens. Uh, are, are you keeping notes? Because there's going to be a, a quiz after all this. Sounds, sounds a little tricky, isn't it? Well, well, once the fermentation happens, which takes about two to three weeks, but you can't just let them sit in the vat. That won't work because then it forms this crust on the top. So what they have to do is they have to punch down the top of the grape must and all that stuff, and the juice is kind of at the bottom. They have to keep pushing that down at least twice a day for three weeks to keep it all marinating right, you know, to kind of like mixing it up like a stew, right? After about three weeks, the fermentation, the first fermentation has happened. Again, keep notes because there's going to be a quiz. Then what has to happen is then they take the, the, the juice that's kind of in the, it, uh, the free juice and they, 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 they siphon that off. And then what's left is this crust of berries and they call it must. They press that. And so that's going to be pretty bitter because if you ever oversteep tea, that's going to be a bit bitter. Well, they mix that bitter stuff with the free juice. And are we done? Nope. Then all that goes into one of these bad boys. Now this is a wine barrel. Uh, and it's got to go in here. It, it goes in this little entry right here. And I won't tell you what this, the term is called. There's a special term for that. But the wine goes in there. And uh, some of you are looking it up right now. I'm not going to say it. The wine goes in there. And are we done? No. Now it's got to sit in here. If it's, if it's Pinot Noir, it's got to sit in here. And sometimes these are newer oak barrels. This is not a new barrel, as you can see. This is an old one. But it'll sit in there for at least a year. And what happens is kind of oxygen kind of gets in there very slowly. Uh, French oak is very, very light, small pores. And so, so then after a, a year, are we done? No. Then we got to pump it out of the barrels and we got to put it in wine bottles. Now we're done, Ben. No, no, actually you're not. Now it needs to rack for a while. All those bottles now sit for at least another year, depending on if it's Pinot Noir, at least a year. You don't see, like 2021 was a big vintage year for Oregon. Lots of fruit. It was warm all the way through. Kind of conditions were perfect like they were in 2008 or 2012. Conditions are perfect, lots of fruit. And, uh, and with that, you can't really taste the wine until about two years after it's been harvested. If everything goes right, and then you can have your glass of wine. All that process, procuring the land, getting the vines right, all the timing, the, the chemistry in the barrel. And then, as we're going to see today in John chapter 2, Jesus comes on the scene. And within two statements and less than 20 words, he creates great wine. Bam, like that. You know, if you're studying winemaking, you're like, Wow, he skipped a lot of processes. But the master of the, the banquet said this wasn't just good wine. It was the best wine. 
Jesus made Grand Cru Burgundy wine. Two statements, less than 20 words. How that happened is crazy. How did he do that? Now, now we know wine has been around for a long time. People are making it for a long time. You're like, man, it can't be that, that difficult. Well, if you want to make good wine, it is a little bit difficult. It takes, it's, a, it's a labor of love. It's an art. But it's been around a long time. We have wine at celebrations all the time, holidays. And, and it, well, when I was a kid, I would go with my grandma, Emma, to Catholic Mass sometimes. And they had their little Catholic wine that you could have. And it was blessed by the priest and everything. But if you've ever tasted that wine, it's like, horrible, sour, ugh, right? And um, like I, I thought for a long time I didn't really like wine. But then, yeah, as, as you grow older, uh, they tell you that wine's made from wine grapes. And I'm like, well, I've had grapes on, I've had table grapes. I've had those. That sounds good. It's very sugary. And so you think, this would be a good thing to try. You had grape juice. That sounds great. Then the first time you try wine, you're like, ugh, horrible, sour, nasty. But we know wine has been around for a long time, but lots of celebrations. So, so here's the question, right? So as we're going to see in John chapter 2, the creator, the almighty God, the universe, puts on flesh, walks among us, and what is his first big divine reveal to the world? He makes hundreds of gallons of good wine for a wedding. That's the creator God's first entrance into the big reveal of who he is why in the world did he choose that? Seems like an odd choice. If I were, if I were him, maybe I would have made a different choice. Uh, I'm not sure what I would have done. Maybe move a mountain or two, move it in the water, something like that. He makes hundreds of gallons of really good wine. This is what he decided to do at a wedding celebration in Cana. Now, when you look at the New Testament, we have about, about 37 miracles recorded from Jesus. About 37 miracles that he performed. And we have the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They record about 37. Now, you could, you could push on that number a little bit. It might be, depending on how you count it, it might be 34. But most scholars think about 37 countable miracles. And so what we're going to be asking in this series that we're starting today, miracles, is maybe, maybe Jesus has a miracle for you. Maybe Maybe you're going to be bold enough to ask Jesus for miracle number 38. Maybe the 38th miracle is for you. Where is it in your life that you could use a touch from Jesus? You could use a miracle today. Is there a miracle you're hoping for in your life? And that could be a career thing. It could be a health thing, a financial thing, a relationship thing. Is there something that you, you really need a, a miracle on? And, and in this series, my hope is that you and I will be emboldened more to ask. Ask for those miracles and expect that. We're, we're kicking this, this series off today. We're going to be talking about miracles that Jesus did. We're also going to be talking about just exactly what is a miracle. Because I suspect that God is still doing all kinds of miracles all around us all the time, and we're just not paying attention. That he'll do these miraculous things, and we're just not paying attention. And here's the question. How many signs and wonders and miracles has God done for you and maybe you just you weren't watching you weren't paying attention you, you didn't have your eyes open maybe you just were too busy but maybe God is wanting to do some miraculous in your life and so the question for this whole series is what do you need from Jesus right now what miracle do you need and you can expect from him I'm Pastor Ben. I'm glad you joined us, whether it be in person. If you're for, for first Sunday with us, awesome that you're here. We'd love to help you take a next step of faith. If you're online, we see you. Hello. Glad you're with us. 
We gather like this, like Christ followers all over the globe. We gather on a Sunday. Why do we gather on a Sunday? Because that was the day Jesus of Nazareth, who was born in a miraculous way, lived a perfect life, did amazing things that we'll see, but then was killed. But on the third day, rose from the dead. And that tomb was empty, and that changed Western culture and human history forever. And that's why we gather on the first day of the week. So it's a Sunday. First day, let's take a deep breath, right? One, two, three. We reset, and today we're going to be talking about Jesus, the winemaker. Let's pray. Father, you're so good and powerful and mighty. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We lean into your, your goodness today. Father, help us. Speak to us. Speak to our hearts about the power that you want to work in our lives and about how beautiful it is that you are a provider and you love to celebrate. And so, Father, help us to be that sort of people today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you got a Bible or a device handy? John chapter 2, you're probably already there. Let's just read this down. Again, as I was saying, interesting that this was the inaugural moment where Jesus reveals his divine nature to the world, well, specifically to some folks at a wedding and his 12 disciples. And we'll see what happens to his 12 disciples once they experience this. But let's read it down, starting with verse 1. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. You might have a different version, and that's okay. John chapter 2, starting with verse 1. On the third day, it's probably like a Tuesday. We don't even know. The middle of the week. So on, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, when the wine ran out, this is the setup. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, this is an interesting interplay here. I'm not, I have lots of questions, but inter interesting what happens here. Jesus said to her, woman, that's interesting, right? What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Interesting, isn't this? Now, there's probably dynamics that we don't know here. But Jesus spent, you know, 30 years working in his dad's shop. You know, we, we think he was a carpenter, or at least a craftsman. He was a construction worker, right? And worked for the family trade. And I don't know what kind of interaction. We don't know if Joseph was, was, had passed away by now. We don't hear about Joseph anymore about this time in Jesus' life. But we got this interaction with Mary. His disciples are there. They're at a wedding. They're having a good time. And what, run, what run, runs out? The wine runs out, which is a pretty important thing in celebration. So then Mary's like, well, do something about it. It's kind of the subtext there. And so then, after Jesus says this, she turns around and starts giving orders to the servants. And she said, hey, do whatever he tells you. Verse 6, now there, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Did you catch that? Some of you may have heard this story back in Sunday school or if you did that back in the day. I don't know that they covered exactly how many gallons we're talking about here. Six jars, 20 to 30 gallons. Just get, get, get mind around that. How many wine bottles are in a gallon? What, about three or four? I don't, I don't know. Start doing the math, and I'm not a math wizard, but I feel like that's a pretty good amount. Anyway, so Jesus said to the servants, okay, Jesus is on board now. I don't know how that happened. There's probably subtext here, but he said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. I love that little detail. It wasn't like half. It was all the way to the top. Hang on to that. To the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Verse 9, when the master 
of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Hang on to that. Believed in him. That was something pretty powerful about this moment. Again, you and I may differ on what we think the first miracle should have been recorded. I'm not sure what you would have said, but I think the wine is an interesting choice on that. And he's at a celebration. Jesus will be accused during his ministry of partying too much. They will call him, if anybody knows the phrase, a drunkard and a glutton because he likes to eat and drink with sinners. He would be accused of that in his ministry. Here he is, first out of the chute. What does he do? He makes hundreds of gallons of not just wine, good wine, and his disciples believed in him. So, so, take a step back. Let me get this straight. So, the God of the universe, who spun the planets into action, uh, his first act to reveal himself to us humans as he put on flesh and walked among us. The first act that he does is he makes hundreds of gallons of good wine on a Tuesday. That was his big reveal to the world. And we could probably draw a lot of thoughts about this. Maybe you're thinking right now that that seems like a strange choice too. But I find it interesting that they filled the the, the jars to the brim, which tells me something about about God. He, he's a God of abundance. And he wants us to, to get the full measure here, not just half. He wants it to all the way to the brim. And then, and then he's about abundance. I mean, look, it, we, don't, we don't really get this in our culture, but this would have been a first century Jewish, ancient Near East culture. Uh, that's a culture that it, it, some people would call it an honor culture. Uh, but, but certainly, hospitality is a big deal for a lot of cultures on, on the planet. But especially here in the Middle East, it was a big deal when you had people coming over for this big family event. You know, marriage then wasn't just a piece of paper you get at the courthouse. This was families connecting and, and, and really joining. So it was a big deal. And in the first century, you wanted to make sure you planned well for this. And so for a family to have all these people over and then the embarrassment of running out of supply would have been tremendously difficult for them culturally. Because they would have planned for this for a long time. So for them to run out of a key ingredient of their celebration would have been super, super embarrassing. And so you could say, well, maybe Jesus was trying to spare them you know, the heartache of having to explain to their neighbors we ran out. You could look at it that way. But I think there's a couple other ways you could look at it. I mean, John calls this a sign. And that's often the word that we translate in, in John's gospel for miracles. He would often call them a sign. So a sign is, is more than just kind of a party trick that Jesus is doing. He's not just out there going, hey, gee whiz, bam, watch this. He tended to have purpose behind what he was doing. 
And so his disciples say, look at that sign. And that, that sign, what, what do signs do in our culture? Go this way. It's pointing to something, right? There's usually a direction. And so the signs were pointing to him being the Messiah. And John would call many of his miracles, including this one, a sign. So that his disciples would believe. And, and I realize we don't have all of them recorded in fact, John, at the end of his gospel, will say, look, if we would have wrote down everything that Jesus did on scrolls, we, we, would, we would need a lot more scrolls. Because there's so many things that he did. But these are recorded so that you would believe. They were a sign to us that this isn't just some ordinary human being. He was that and God. And now there's mystery to that, but he wasn't just playing around. This was a sign that had people believing. In fact, what, what are the servants? Can you imagine the next day the servants talking about this? Nobody would believe them. Like, who would believe them? Hey, yesterday, you wouldn't believe this. This guy from, I think, Cana, I think his name is Jesus or whatever, and uh, they were here at the wedding. Can you imagine trying to tell that story and having anybody believe you? And like, well, the wine was here, but the celebration kept going, so I have not left. Can you imagine that story? What did, what did that impact? How did that impact? And the disciples, they saw and believed. There's something powerful. Did, did, did the bride, right? The bride's always the important part in the wedding ceremonies and stuff. Did she ever know? I mean, I have questions. Do you have questions about this story? There's more detail that I want to know. Like, did, did they ever know who did it? In fact, we don't even know if the, the, the master of the ceremony even knew to go say, hey, Jesus, thanks for covering us. Appreciate that. I mean, the store's like, you know, an hour away. You covered it. Thanks. You went a little, went a little overboard with the amount of wine, but thank you. For that miracle, we don't know if that interaction ever happened. Did anybody know, other than Mary, his disciples, and those servants, what had happened? I don't know. I, I, this is a detail I would like to know at some point. Inquiring minds want to know. I want to know what happened. But this impact, and, and, and here's, here's what I love about this, this, this miracle. There's a lot of things we could talk about, but this seems so elementary to me. It seems so earthy. Jesus didn't have to conjure up a bunch of extra stuff for this, for this miracle, did he? he? He used what they had. He didn't say, well, if I'm going to do this miracle properly, I'm going to go ahead and need some French oak, and I'm going to need some of these bottles, I need some corks, you got corker anywhere? He didn't have to conjure up any of that. I realize that's silly because they did it differently back then, but he didn't have to conjure up anything. He's using what they already had. Hey, those jars... Go put some water. You know what water is? Put, put those natural elements. And then he does this miraculous thing, not for the sake of making wine, but for the sake of really a testimony. A little early, albeit, because I feel like Mary in this interaction is kind of like pushing him. I don't know. You get that same feeling where Mary's like, well, what are we going to do? The wine's out. And he's like, well, what does that have to do to me? My time's not come yet. He, meaning that he, maybe he wasn't ready to start this, you know, three-year march to that. I don't know where he was, what his mind was thinking but used ordinary things to do the extraordinary. Ordinary things to do. And, and I, I guess a question for you and I, for you today, I, maybe Jesus wants to do a miracle like, like this, a miracle of abundance. All right, we could say that. There was an abundant amount and of excellence and of celebration. All three of these, I think, find themselves in this story that Jesus embraced Celebration, he embraced abundance. Do you believe God has enough to get you through? And, and are, you, are you a celebrating sort of person? I look around the room and I wonder, how good are we at celebrating? Jesus modeled celebration for us. 
he modeled that. Yes, moderation, that's all part of this, right? When we talk about things like wine and things like that. But look, he's, he's modeling celebration. He's modeling abundance. And so the question for you and I, right? Is there a miracle that Jesus needs to do in your life right now? A sign of celebration, a miracle of abundance. What does Jesus need to do in your life that would provide something excellent, praiseworthy? What is that for you? A sign or wonder, a display of his power in your life. And maybe, maybe Jesus wants to do that with, with who you are already and what you already have. Think about what you have. Think about how blessed, in, in, and we use that term a lot, and I, I, it drives me crazy to say that, but we, we really are, we ought to be the most thankful people on the planet. There's a lot of things that we could be thankful for. Uh, yeah, many of us in this room, we're, we're maybe not rich, but we have a lot to be thankful for. When was, when was the last time you worried about getting a meal? I mean, you start putting in those terms, when's the last time you worried about having clean water? Or, or a vehicle to get you someplace. Or, or the last time you worried about the stock market, because, oh, well, this thing's going crazy. You have stocks. Like, most of the world does not have this. We are, we are so blessed that way. And, and, and I wonder, in your life already, is, is there the, the material for Jesus to do a miracle in your life? Using the ordinary. Using wood and water jars and whatever you have in your maybe it's not a wine miracle for you right but it's but, but maybe Jesus wants to use your ordinary to do something extraordinary something ordinary can do something extraordinary look you think about this if you want to argue with me on this point think about Moses he encounters God right back in this is the old testament Torah and uh, Moses isn't quite sure about this God guy and uh, he kind of tests God. Well, how do I know? I don't know if you're the really, you know, are you really there? I mean, you've spoken in, in, in this burning bush, and that was cool, but are you really there? And God says, what are you holding in your hand? And he looks at his hand, and he's got a stick in his hand. Not a unicorn, not a Tesla, just a, just a stick. And what does God tell him to do? Throw it down. And he throws it down, and it becomes a snake. Nothing out of the ordinary there. These are normal things you would see walking around the wilderness. You're going to see sticks and you're going to see snakes. Preferably, I'd rather not see a snake, but those are natural elements. What, God, what, God, what could God do in your life with what you already have? What, what's in your hand? What does Jesus want to do with who you are and what you already have? He can do something extraordinary with the ordinary. Jesus said these words. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He's talking about God the Father. Seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and, and all these things will be added to you. It didn't say, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and a few things will be added for you. He says all things will be added. Uh, here, here's, a, here's a Greek <clears throat> word study for you. The word there is the word panta. And uh, you know what that means? All. So there's your Greek term for you. All things. Everything. He's going he's gonna, to, this will happen. And, and so we hear that and we think, okay, that sounds good, but we don't maybe believe it. Maybe we don't really believe 
that he can provide all things. We're, we're, we're trying to follow the way of Jesus and walk in his steps. We're, we're seeking his kingdom and his righteousness first. We're trying to do that way. We're trying to be generous to our neighbor and loving and, and try to be a, you know, someone who, who cares for others and, and, and are, you know, helps other people. We're following that path. Jesus himself said, okay, you're following, following my righteousness. Then, then all these things will be added to you. What are you afraid of asking for? Is there a miracle that you, you are afraid to ask for? Is it, you think maybe, maybe the miracle that you, you need right now, whether that be, again, job or health or relationship, whatever that thing is, maybe you think it's too big. Maybe you're afraid to ask. Maybe you're afraid that God will turn your ordinary into something extraordinary. What are, what are you needing from Jesus in this series? We're, I'm hoping to hit this every week. What are you needing from Jesus this week? And I want us to learn this prayer today. And it's very simple. And it goes like this. I'll just read, I'll say it first, and then I want you to repeat that back. And if you want to close your eyes and do this in a prayer sort of manner, that would be awesome. But here it goes. God, grant me the blessing of abundance and celebration. Now, I seem like, that may seem like a crazy thing to pray, but God has everything you need. He will provide all things. And, and, and Jesus provided an abundant amount on that miracle. He's not a God of scarcity. Too often, I think, we go through life and we're like hoarding. We're, we're, we're living with our, our, our fists closed. We've got to hoard what we got. We can't be generous because we've got we to save for ourselves. Rather than living open-handedly. And if we really trusted God, trusted his story, trusted that he's got everything we need, then we have nothing to worry about. We can be generous, finally. We can actually live open-handedly rather than with a scarcity mentality. We've got to protect ours. I think in this miracle, this first out-of-the-shoot miracle, God is clearly saying, I'm a God that's got all abundance. And I'm a God that likes to celebrate. God grant me the blessing of abundance and celebration. Let's try that together. God grant me the blessing of abundance and celebration. One more time. God grant me the blessing of abundance and celebration. I want us to celebrate more. Jesus here, he gives us that model of celebration. He gives us that model of abundance that God has enough. We just trust him. God, you have enough. Give us this day our daily bread. We say it, but we don't always believe it. He's got enough for us. Our God is abundant. He does excellent. When he, when he does something, it's very good. That's what the scripture says, very good. He's abundant and he celebrates. And so in this series, I want us to be asking this. And maybe this is something you need to write down. But we're going to keep coming back to this. But I want us all, maybe this week, maybe today, we're going to be praying for that miracle. Praying for what Jesus, we're going to be praying for number 38. 38th miracle, right? What, what do you need to ask Jesus for? What is something in your life you need a miracle on? And can we start believing in his abundance? Believing that we can be a celebrating people. I want us to ask for the miracle. That's the first thing. Ask, 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 ask. There's a thing that, I, that they told us back in fundraising days when I had to fundraise to, to launch this church so, so many years ago. They said, if you, if you don't ask, you don't get. You've never heard that phrase before? You ask. I'm wondering how many of us have not asked. We want God to do something big, but we haven't even asked him. Ask God for the miracle. Ask him for something big. Number two, believe that he can deliver. And number three, trust his timing. This is not always our timing. That's the hardest one probably right there. The asking part probably and then the trusting part. 
So we ask for the big thing. Ask for the miracle. What is something you could ask for today? A big miracle. Something you need. And then believe he can deliver. He's got the goods. He's got the abundance. And trust his timing. Look, imagine a church family that the people could see around us a people of celebration. A people who were not afraid to party it up. And I'm not saying we partied up for, 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 for you know, going gangbusters and, and we're, we're, we're losing control here. We're partying, we're celebrating his goodness. Not overdoing it, but being celebrating people. What if we could be that people that live with a assurance that God's going to provide the abundance and we can be generous? Imagine a community seeing people like that. I want to be a church like that, that can be celebrating people, that can be living with abundance and not so scarce, not scarcity mentality. I want to live open-handedly. I think Jesus in this miracle is showing us all of those things. God's abundance, God's provision, God's excellence, and celebration. May we be people like that. And maybe this week, you could be a miracle for somebody. You could be a miracle in someone's life. Maybe you have the ability to be Jesus for someone this week. And you could actually be the answer to a prayer they've been praying. God's not afraid to use us. And that's a good thing. I want to pray, pray here to close this out, but if you're here today and you've been hearing me talk about Jesus and abundance and you've never said yes to Jesus, certainly every week we get together, I'd love for you to take a next step of faith. Say yes to Jesus. Let him be your Lord and Savior. Let him provide that abundance in your life, that celebration. You can have that. I encourage you online to do that same thing. Reach out. We'd love to help you take a next step. But for many of us who've said yes to Jesus already, may this be our prayer this week that we would, would ask God to grant us the blessing of abundance, right? Abundance and celebration. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, your faithfulness, your mercies are new every morning. And Lord, help us to be a people that celebrate and, and the people that trust your abundance so that we can not live with a scarcity mentality, but, but live with a, with a generous heart and be open-handed. Father, help us to be that kind of people, taking a cue from your son, Jesus. And Father, may you do mighty work through us because we believe and trust you that, Lord, you can do the big things, you can do the miracles. And Father, help us to be expecting that more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.